Okay, um, <clears throat> we are in, uh, in the midst of a gift week, and um, I've asked Sean um, to come and just give us something of his story uh, in terms of what God has been doing in him in this whole area of faith for finances. And uh, I really want you, I'm, I'm, we don't often introduce a speaker like this, particularly one of our own, but I want you to hear this with faith, okay? Sean is not one to boast apart from in his God, but God has done significant things through the faith that he and Rachel and the family have walked through. And the reason we're doing this this morning, the reason I've asked him to do this is because I think it's going to inspire faith for us to be more releasing with what God wants to do with us as we talk about a gift week. So let's welcome Sean. Thanks so much, Russ. So as he said, I realize this is a gift week, and you'd expect someone to stand up here and talk about money and giving and stuff like that, which, as he said, I will be doing. I'm sorry about that. But I actually, actually, in a way, I wish it wasn't a gift week, because giving is about our ongoing discipleship. It's not about one-off fundraising projects. The goal um, is not just so that we can hit our giving target. Um, that will be a wonderful secondary outcome, and we will praise God for it. And I believe he will provide all that we need. The purpose of all giving is not to get more, what, more from what God has given us. The goal of giving is to get to know God. And a gift week is just one opportunity to allow that to happen. I actually wanted to start by just thanking anyone that's ever given towards the building up of this church. And I don't just mean bricks and mortar, I mean ministry, and I mean mission, and I mean social action over years and years and years. We, many of us, stand on the, stand on the shoulders of many that have given over such a long time into the work of this church. Over the last 10 years, I've, I kind of try to do some, some calculations here, because I love, I love calculations. Um, over the last 10 years, which is only a third of the, the life of Citygate Church, we've given 2.2 million around that figure just to building projects alone. So since Withens Down the Road, where Love Church are now in, and they are flourishing, and they are growing as a church, and also here at the Citygate Center, where we are, and we are flourishing, and we are growing. And on top of that, a further 3.5 million, probably over the last 10 years, just into birthing new ministries and sustaining ministries, mission, and social action. Giving is not a new thing for Citygate Church. It's part of our DNA. It's what we do. And it wouldn't be difficult for me to find a hundred stories very, very quickly just here of how giving has helped us to draw closer to God. I also just wanted to ask everyone to be very attentive to um, what is happening in your spirit today. If you have any feeling of guilt or condemnation, um, coming over you as I'm speaking, then either I've misspoken or the enemy is sowing a lie in your heart and you don't have to listen to that voice today. But if you sense something life-giving and wholesome, um, even though it's challenging and it's causing you to want to change what's happening in your life, this heart transformation, if that aligns with the truth of what God is saying, then it's more likely that that's the Holy Spirit talking and you can and should pay attention to that voice today. 
Tim spoke actually last week on stewardship, so I genuinely am just going to try and speak about the gift of giving um, this morning. Giving does a number of things in, in us, and I want to focus on two. One is what it does to our heart. I believe it's heart surgery for us. And also what it says and reminds us about our true home, which is heaven. So let's dive straight into to what it does to our hearts. In Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21, it says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But further down in verse 24, it also says, No one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In Luke 18, we come across um, a rich young ruler. And he asks Jesus, how do I receive eternal life? He's basically saying, I've read the scriptures and I actually even, I think I'm doing most of the stuff that I'm reading. So what do I do? I wonder how we would respond to this guy. What an amazing opportunity for the gospel, hey? My response would probably look like, um, probably be something like this. Well, you need to repent of your sin and ask Jesus for forgiveness and believe in him as your savior. And when he says, yeah, I believe, because that wouldn't have cost him anything, I would probably go on to say, well, then let me lead you through a prayer and let's celebrate the saving work of Jesus, right? Also, and I probably shouldn't care about this, but I'm probably thinking, How amazing, a rich guy in the kingdom of God. What can he do? What does Jesus say instead? Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor. Then come and follow me. The rich man leaves very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus didn't do this with everyone, but with this rich man, he knew that his God was mammon, which is the love of money. It seems that handling our money is a litmus test of our true character. It seems money is not separated from spirituality. Money is either your master and you serve it, or Jesus is your master and your money serves his kingdom purposes. Jesus knew that none of us can enthrone the true God unless in the process we dethrone other gods. If Christ is not Lord over your money and possessions, then he is not Lord. Wow, Sean, thanks for going straight for the, for the jugular there. But it's true. Jesus sees our hearts, and he knows us just as he knew this guy. There's a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Where is your heart? Jesus' words were profound, and they were direct. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our possessions is a true indicator of what's in our hearts. So Jesus is saying, show me your banking app, show me your credit card statement, and I'll show you where your heart is. What we do with our money doesn't lie. It's a bold statement to God of what we truly value. But what we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. 
According to Jesus, it determines where our heart goes. This means if I want my heart to be in one particular place and not in another, then I need to put my money in one particular place and not another. It's true that kind of swapping around the statement also works, but only sometimes. What I mean by that is where your heart is, there your treasure will be. It's true sometimes, but it's not always true. You hear of married couples who, you just don't see generosity in the relationship. You kind of seen that sometimes? Most, most married couples, you do see that, but sometimes you don't. Also notice that um, often um, where you see couples where they haven't pulled their money together, but where they suddenly do, in terms of like a joint account, the commitment and love and generosity and, and, and all that seems to flow from that place. And it may be the reason, reason why the rich celebrity culture that we see is littered with divorce. What do we value most? What would, be most, what would we most hate to lose? What affords us the greatest pleasure? God has been incredibly uh, patient with me in my journey of making him my treasure. Um, and I've not arrived there by any stretch of the imagination, but I believe I have learned some stuff. I was, um, I was born in South Africa, and, um, and my family went from being comfortably wealthy to completely broke in the space of, of one year. Um, my, my dad's business crashed, couldn't pay the bills. Uh, the bailiffs did a fantastic job of coming and getting all of our stuff uh, and finally took, took the house as well. Um, and we ended up um, on a farmer's plot of land um, in a little outhouse uh, with a tin roof. Every time it rained, literally you could do nothing else because the noise was absolutely unbearable. And in South Africa, there's no social security, there's no job center, there's no universal credit, there's no child benefit. If you're down and out, you are completely down and out. And I remember helping my dad tile the floor of this farmer's house just to pay the rent one of the months. And I tell you what, the pride in my poor dad that his wealth had fed to that point was in a moment completely stripped away. I hadn't really seen a great deal of my dad up to that point. His heart had been where his treasure was, uh, which was his business and the clients that would build up his treasure, and the golf club. My family was important, but only to the extent that we were financially looked after. But the heart wasn't completely there. I started to see my dad pray. He spent more time with his family because his treasure was forcibly realigned to his family because there was no more treasure. I think some, something shifted in me as well. I had seen that God's way, though painful and also embarrassing at times, was better because our hearts were being changed in the process of having to trust in him. I'd seen how God had changed my parents through no willingness of their own, and I just wondered what would happen, what would it look like if I willingly put my trust in God, God's provision? What would that kind of look like? I was a slow learner. I started um, coming here as a student 18 years ago, can you believe it? Um, and I loved getting stuck in. I tried to find out where I could use uh, my gifts and be involved. Um, I drank the coffee that someone else had paid for. I sat on the seat that someone else had bought. I enjoyed playing the drum kit that others had faithfully and regularly given 
in order to purchase. I sang the songs that a band was playing who someone else had invested in. It was great. It was all free. And then I heard someone teaching on giving. And the, the chair just did not feel as comfortable as it did before. The coffee didn't taste as good. Actually, the, actually, the coffee was absolutely awful back then. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, we've, we've definitely moved on. But my, my inner dialogue at that point was, well, I'm a, I'm a student, I'm in debt. I, I, I can't give, surely. And I just felt a tug from God on me, just saying, well, you're using that as an excuse not to give, rather than actually, I could stop some of my wasteful spending, which I really did as a student, sometimes still do, and I could save some of that up, and I could give. And Jesus started me on the journey. I started five pounds a week, just started giving to, to the church. Jesus got my heart when I began to give. The weirdest thing that started to happen, I started caring more about the church. I started taking on more responsibility. I started praying for the church, its leaders, the people in it. Because where your treasure is, even that five pounds, is where your heart will be also. I started praying for God's provision more and more, and self-reliance started to weaken in me. Do you wish that you had a greater heart for the poor and the lost? Then give your money to help the poor and reach the lost. Do you want your heart to be more for the church? Put your money there. Your heart will always be where your money is and not where your money isn't. If most of your money is in retirement, in the FTSE, in your house, in your family holiday, in your hobbies, that's where I'll find your heart and your focus and your attention. Second reason why I believe that God instigated this whole thing around giving is because it's a reminder of our true home. Let's take another two people. Let's pretend that you were a financial advisor to an extremely poor elderly woman, and she tells you that she's down to her last 20 pounds. But she feels that God is telling her to put the whole lot in the offering. What do you say? Like me, you'll probably say something patronizing like this. That's really generous of you. But God also wants us to have common sense. He knows your heart that you want to give, but he wants to take care of you as well. I'm sure he actually wants you to keep that 20 pounds and buy some food. What does Jesus say? I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Didn't see Jesus rushing to that offering basket and stopping the woman, did you? He enshrined her in the word of God so that future generations would look to her and emulate her. Your next appointment is with a wealthy farmer whose crop production has just gone through the roof and he's planning on tearing down all his barns to build bigger ones, to store all of it. He says, look, that way I can, I can retire early and we can, I can go traveling with the missus. I've been wanting to do that for ages. What do you say? That sounds amazing. You've worked so hard for so long. You deserve to finally get away and enjoy it. What does Jesus say? You fool. He tells him that his life will be demanded of him and you'll get what you prepared for yourself. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up for himself 
but is not rich towards God. Is anyone feeling uncomfortable yet? I definitely am. God sees the poor woman as eternally wise and the wealthy farmer as eternally foolish. When spent on earthly treasure, money is of temporary value unless it's spent on a view towards heavenly treasure. Jesus invites us to choose our treasury. Jesus' primary argument against amassing material wealth isn't that it's morally wrong, but that it's just simply a poor investment. Jesus was massively into investment. Worth is actually worth seeking, but what constitutes true wealth? It's like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, sold all he had with joy and bought the field. It's a simple question of relative value. Before he found that treasure in that field, his possessions meant so much to, to him. But once he found the treasure, everything else was completely worthless. By putting our money in his treasury while still on earth, we assure ourselves of eternal rewards beyond, beyond comprehension. Jesus therefore calls us to trade temporal possessions, which we can't keep, to gain eternal possessions, which we can't lose. When he warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost. It's because wealth definitely will be lost. If you don't believe in heaven, then everything I'm saying is completely futile, the whole lot. I mean, I think giving does make you a better person, just about. Even if you're a non-believer in the room today, I bet you probably give to something, because giving makes you a bit less selfish. Ironically, it makes you feel good about yourself as well. But the believer's view of reality should be radically different than the non-believer. We should live differently because we see differently. Every heartbeat brings us one moment closer to eternity. And every day that the person whose treasure is on earth is headed away from his treasure. But the person whose treasure is in heaven is headed towards it. So anyone heading away from their treasure should have reason to despair. But everyone moving towards it should have reason to rejoice. Eternity will hold for us what we have invested during our life on earth. Scripture makes it clear that the business of this life is to prepare for the next. Heaven is real, and eternal rewards are based on our works. You might say to me, well, surely just knowing that I'm going to be in heaven, that's, that's got to be enough, right? Well, apparently that's not enough for God we will all give an account of everything we've invested in. Things invested in the earthly treasury will feel like loss to us on that day. And everything invested in the heavenly treasury will be unfathomable reward for all eternity. Failing to get a correct understanding of heaven makes us cling to earth as our home. But it's not. It's just a tent. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're not talking about eternal salvation, just before you start throwing rocks at me, right? Christ paid the price for our sins. 
we, if we have confessed his lordship and received his forgiveness for those sins, they are totally forgiven. We stand justified. The judgment of our sins is done and it is dealt with. The blood of Jesus has accomplished all of it. It is enough. But there will be a judgment of our works, it seems. Jesus condemns works done to earn salvation and works done to impress each other. But he enthusiastically commends us to do works for him that affect our eternity. Salvation is about God's work on behalf of humanity. Rewards are about our work for God. With our salvation, the work is Christ's. And with rewards, the work is ours. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12 is probably one of the most challenging explanations of this. It says this, if anyone builds on this foundation, builds on this foundation, the foundation of Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will, be bring, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Jesus doesn't want our work, the works of our lifetime, to go up in smoke. He wants us to have eternal rewards, and he has given us resources in Christ to live the godly life that will result in those rewards. Scripture doesn't teach that maybe what some of us might assume, I, I certainly did for a while, that heaven will transform each of us into equal beings with equal possessions and equal responsibility and equal capacity, like communism gone right. It does not say that our previous life will have no eternal significance. It says the exact opposite. Just before my mom died uh, two years ago, um, and one of my last conversations with her showed me what was truly valuable. As she talked about, as she talked with me, all she could talk about is the people that she loved, that she would leave behind, and Jesus, her maker that she was about to meet. Nothing else mattered. In fact, she had complete disdain for anything material, anything that she had been anxious and worried about. She regretted giving any attention to any of that worthless stuff. I want to be able to lay a crown before Jesus that brings him glory. Receiving rewards in heaven will glorify the reward giver. I want to see a multitude of people that have been impacted by, hopefully, my kindness and compassion, my advocacy, my hospitality, my generosity. I want to see a multitude that not only heard the gospel out of my mouth, but that my giving sent people into the fields to harvest a dying world and seeing many rescued. Heaven will be awesome beyond our imagination, but it will be more wonderful for some than others, depending on the treasury that we invest in. Everyone in this room will have a different experience of heaven, forged by the works of this life. This world is not our home. It is a tent. When, um, 
when me and Rach first got married, I was desperate to own a house because everyone around us was. It's what you do. And on three separate occasions, um, it all just fell apart at the last hurdle. And at the time, I really could not understand why on earth um, that, was, that was happening. Why us? Um, now I know that I, was, I feel I was searching for a solution in my own strength. Um, if you come across the passage of, of Isaac and Ishmael, probably in, in, in the story of Abraham in Genesis. But I felt like I was trying to get an Ishmael instead of waiting for an Isaac. And um, since then, uh, we have moved five times in five years, and we're about to move again. But I've learned more through all of this about how to trust in God than anything else in my entire life. I've learned more about my real home through this than anything else. God landed us in um, a massive vicarage about five years ago through what can only be described as miraculous intervention, right? For a measly 800 pounds a month. <clears throat> I should probably just give a caveat. I tend to tell stories and actually use the proper figures. And I know that's not very British, but I just wanted to be really unambiguous about God's crazy stories in our life, okay? So none of this is about me trying to boast in anything. It's, it's all him, okay? So <clears throat> we... We didn't know how long we were going to stay in, in, this, in this first place. Maybe a year, maybe two. So we try to treat the whole thing as a loan, like a loan. Um, to invest in as many people as we possibly could. We had different people live with us. We ran some different uh, ministries. We had goodness knows how many people um, through our doors. We, we stored people's stuff in every crevice and, and, and kind of part that we could find. Um, just to do whatever we, ca- we could. We just completely went for it. Um, then we got notice that we had to leave. Um, two years in, the Church of England needed needed, needed back. And uh, I, I just got the family together to tell them and to pray. And um, um, yeah, just with tears running down our faces, maybe because we'd probably grown a bit too possessive. Um, of their house. I don't know. But an hour after praying, the landlord had found another place for us to go to and had arranged for us to pick up the keys. There were even more rooms in this house for the same, for the same rent. Um, and again, we had no idea how long we might stay there, but we just thought this is another opportunity. And so we had other people come and live with us. In fact, we had a whole family come and live with us um, so that we could just help each other out. So there were 11 people living in this one house, and goodness knows how many others that Rach just kept inviting for dinner, which she tends to do. Um, And six months later, we were given notice again. But once again, the landlord handed us keys to another vicarage for another two years. But then it was over. We needed to find a house ourselves, and we landed in the one that we're in now, paying an extra 450 pounds a month, which I know everyone else here is having to do the same thing as well. But it's where God wants us for now, and where we are has opportunities for putting him first with our money. If God decides that he wants to bless us with a home, our own home, then great. But it's not going to be mine. 
I'm just managing his assets, and he gives me the privilege of investing in heavenly treasure. It's not ours. Okay. So if giving is God's way of teaching us heart and heaven, then how do I know what's the right amount to give? Christians used to lead the way in altruism. We were at the forefront of generosity, generosity towards the marginalized, where the rest of society looked on in awe at how Christians could give to those who wouldn't be able to repay them. Now, I don't believe they look at us in the same way because we don't look very different. Dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than today. Between 30 to 50% of active church attenders give nothing. A Gallup report showed that those who attend weekly church services give 3.4% of income annually. Non-religious people give 1.1%. So what is the right amount to give? I realize that this is a gift week, and so the kind of giving that we might want to give today is is very one-off, but I just want to spend a bit of time on regular giving and tithing. Is tithing just an Old Testament law thing, or is it for us today? Why did Jesus ask one person to give up everything, and to another person he didn't ask them to do anything? What is tithing even? Tithing is actually was actually preceded by the Israelite laws. We see Abraham and Jacob both tithing even before Moses. And it's basically meant, what it meant was presenting back to God the best and the first 10% of income perpetually. So if if tithing, let's look at it in in our world today. So in our day and age, say say you earn 20,000 pounds a year, gross you would give 2,000 pounds, not after tax and pension and childcare vouchers and student loan and goodness knows what else comes out of payroll first, but because God gets the first fruits rather than HMRC or Rome in Jesus' day. And if you receive that regular giving, regular, regular income on a monthly basis like a salary, then you would divide it by 12, and so as soon as you got it, you would give. So in this case, it would be 167 pounds. If you earn 100,000 pounds, that would be giving 10,000 pounds. And if if that was on a monthly basis, that would be 834 pounds a month. So we all know what tithing is. Jesus most likely tithed. He was raised as a devout Jew. His parents tithed and would have instructed him to tithe, tithe. Jesus was accused of so many things, including gluttony and drunkenness and not keeping the Sabbath, but never once was he accused of violating the law of tithing. The Talmud actually actually um, forbade the keeper of the law from sitting down with anyone and dining with anyone who did not tithe. Can you imagine that in our day and age? That'd be crazy. The problem with the law was that it was exactly that, a law. Most of the time we'll do something because it's illegal not to. Not because we are motivated by love, or because the lawgiver was so kind to me. Enter Jesus. Jesus doesn't remove tithing. He went way further. Because the tithe was being used as a way of giving the smallest amount possible under the law, rather than being the training wheels for generosity to spring from. 
Did you notice that he didn't say to the rich young ruler, give 10% to the poor? The rich young ruler was already giving 10% to the poor. He was Jewish. In fact, Zacchaeus probably tithed, but it did nothing to his heart. For these two people, something significant had to happen. Something had to change. Idols needed to be demolished because there was no cost. There was no sacrifice for them in obeying the law. It wasn't fueled by grace. Tithing, like so many other things, can sometimes become legalism. It's not legalism in itself. It's a biblical principle. But our hearts can make anything legalism. Um, Prayer could be legalistic, depending on what's happening in your heart. What if I said to you, yeah, I used to pray, but I just found it was, I was just getting too legalistic about it. I wasn't really feeling it. So I just, I stopped doing it. Um, I might pick it up again, but right now, I just, I'm just not feeling it. Just like, don't feel. What if the mandatory law of needing to wear seatbelts was repealed? Would you stop wearing your seatbelt? Would I tell my kids, kids don't need to wear seatbelts anymore, even though it's in the car, there to protect them? Hey, kids, take those, take the seatbelts off. You're not under the law anymore. Tithing is a good foundation to giving and good for our discipleship. Jesus never intended to remove it, but to take our hearts on a journey from this point, to see Jesus as the greatest giver ever, to see him as the greatest gift ever given, so costly and yet so generous to him. His very life poured out to rescue me, and I had nothing to offer him. My sins removed through a ransom that only his blood was good enough, expensive enough to atone for. I don't want my giving to be restricted by a law. I want grace to transform my heart and my wallet. I think there are three levels of giving. Giving less than our ability, this was definitely where the rich man was. And apparently it's about, it's 96% of where the West are, according to recent data. Jesus may not be asking you to sell your possessions to the poor. He might be. But he is asking, where is your heart? Second, second, second level is according to your ability. This is about where 3% of the West are at. So you're in small company. But even today, Jesus might be saying, where is your heart? Thirdly, beyond our ability. This is where only 1% are. And this is where the adventure of faith really kicks in. This is where we are pushing our giving past the point where the figures just do not add up. I'm not suggesting that I am always here, but there have been moments where this has been the case. Um, I want to to finish with a story, a very recent story, uh, of what me and Rachel have, have kind of been going through. And again, this is absolutely not about me doing well. I cannot boast in in myself. Um, There's only one person to boast in, and that's Jesus. When we moved back um, into the recent flat that we're in, paying $1,250 a month um, last May, we we took a huge hit financially, um, because we were having a lodger at the time, so it actually meant that we had to find £700 um, a month from that point on, and uh, had to come up with a hefty deposit for the new place. 
clutch on the car went at the same time. Um, just everything went belly up for us at that point. But we had pushed our regular giving up to quite a significant place at that point for us um, when we were living in the vicarage. Um, but, and I felt in my spirit that we shouldn't lower it. Um, I knew God had got us to this level of trust and obedience and just felt right in my spirit to keep it there. Now, that's not a formula and that's not a rule for everything. That's just what God was personally doing in our lives at that time. Anyway, with this move and all this extra expense, plus paying for New Day and West Point and our caravan holiday, which maybe we shouldn't have done last year, we quickly got into debt. And by the time we got to West Point, that debt was up to 7,000 pounds. And this isn't a story of how to handle debt. This is a story about how God has provided. So let's focus on that. At West Point, I was standing um, on the offering night and just saying to God, I've got nothing. What has happened? How on earth am I in this position? I feel embarrassed. I should be someone that is helping people with their money. I can steward the church's money, and I can even steward commission's money, but my finances are in a complete wreck. And I just felt God saying to me, I'm going before you again, and I'm going to get rid of your debt. And I want you to give a tenth of the total of your debt as a pledge to me in this offering. <laughs> what? Give, give more. <laughs> I don't know if you've been in that situation where it's like, this is crazy. This is completely unreasonable if earth is our home, but completely reasonable if God is who he says he is and heaven exists. So I pledged, and then I told Rach. <laughs> Again, this isn't a story about wisdom on my part. This is a story about God's provision. I get home. No idea on earth how I'm going to be able to redeem this thing, never mind kind of start eating into this debt. There's an anonymous envelope that comes through our door, and I am not kidding you. It is 700 pounds. I'm, no one knew. No one knew about this pledge. I'd only just told Rach. And first temptation, Sean, put it down. Just put it down on the credit card. Just put it down on the credit card. That's what you do, isn't it? No. First fruits. I took that envelope straight into the commission office <laughs> the next week. And the next week, another 500-pound anonymous envelope hits the floor. And the week after, another anonymous envelope hits the floor. <sighs> Fast forward to this week, we have had 6,680 6, <laughs> pounds given to us from nine different sources, including anonymous giving to us. This week, I have paid off all of our debt. I know that when you hear a story like that, you can probably have two responses. The first one might be, oh, great, good for you. <laughs> or you can think, 
That's what my Father in heaven does. The first response is an earthly one. It's an orphan mentality one. The second response is a royal son and daughter response. Because we have a Father in heaven who has won us, and we are citizens of heaven. For those that have never given, today might be, might be the start of your adventure. It could be that you pledge to this gift week, which we're about to go for, but it may be that you just start thinking of something regular as well. Don't, for one second, do it out of pressure from me. And I'm not just saying that because I know that the money will go to good cause. Do it because of heart and do it because of heaven. Do it because Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For those that have given before, but you know it's not where God wants you to be. Maybe it's comfortable, but no cost. Maybe it's not changing the direction of your heart. Maybe today is an opportunity for your heart to move by giving to this offering. But it may also be an opportunity for you to try something, a tithe challenge. Maybe just two months. Just see. Just see what the God of the universe might do in sustaining you. He's done it with me, and I wholeheartedly recommend him to you. For those that have journeyed well in this already, I want you to know the well done of heaven. You have brought heaven's resources down to earth to be distributed among God's army for his purposes. What a privilege to be a part of that. Today may not, may not even be for you, but it could also be. Maybe God has another exciting adventure of extravagant generosity mixed with faith and kingdom stuff ready for you. I think it's time we just listen to him in this moment and see what he wants to say. Thanks. Wow. You've heard a, um, a master class on how to give a message on giving. You've heard, heard the heart of a man who is working it out in practice. And uh, he set the challenge before us all, hasn't he? God, through him, has set a challenge to us this morning. And uh, we're just going to be quiet before God, actually, because this isn't a moment for me to speak. It's a moment for him to speak. Right into your heart. Come Holy Spirit. (laughs) 